Welcome to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome, everyone, to episode 51. We have two members of the COO Society joining us today. Both are running relatively new firms. Paces Ferry will turn five this year, and Flower City Capital will turn seven. But I've been very impressed how both have been very deliberate in their plans for growth and honing in on their service offerings for clients. So I know we'll learn a lot from both of them today. Um, first up, joining us from Flower City Capital in Rochester, New York, is Vince Crane. Vince is the COO, CCO, and partner at the firm. I knew the founder of Flower City dating back to my days at Focus Financial, and he introduced me to Vince right about the time he joined the firm in 2018. So we've known each other for quite a while now. But uh, Vince, welcome to the COO Roundtable. Thanks, Matt. I'm excited to be here. Great. And alongside Vince today is Zach Morris, managing partner and founder of Paces Ferry. Zach doesn't hold the COO title, but as you all know, when you are first launching a business, everyone wears a lot of hats and Zach has taken on the operations responsibilities at the firm. So he's more than capable of handling our in the weeds ops questions today. Welcome to the, uh, to the podcast, Zach. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here as well. Great. Well, Vince, I'll go to you first. Um, give us the story of Flower City Capital. Flower City Capital was founded in 2016 in Rochester, New York. Um, our founder has a background in private equity and in investment banking. Um, so after a short stint at a local RIA, he couldn't find a firm where he was comfortable sending his family, so ended up starting his own. And that's really our founding story, and I think it speaks to what we're all about and how we do things. The simple thesis at the time was that there was a market for high quality advice on the fiduciary model, which we define as deep advisory relationships, a data-driven institutional caliber investments program that's integrated with a proactive planning process um, that's designed to create maximum value for clients. Um, and all of that built on a strong operating platform with a friendly and caring service team. Seven years later, it's been fun to watch that thesis play out as we're now a team of five, right in that sweet spot as a high-performing ensemble practice, free of institutional conflict and really in charge of our own destiny. We have two lead advisors, an associate advisor slash financial planner. We have a dedicated client services manager, as well as myself. Um, we currently serve about 120 clients across the country with about 200 million in regulatory AUM. Our core client is between one to 10 million. Um, we do have quite a few that are larger than that and quite a few that are smaller than that as well. I would say that we value the personal side of things more than specific wealth thresholds. Um, it's about valuing what we do and being a good fit for our full court press approach. We've gotten to this point 100% organically by always doing the right thing, creating maximum value for clients and focusing on our capabilities over growth for growth's sake. Um, and we're planning on being here for another 30 years plus. Um, so we know that we're going to get a lot of shots on goal and the challenge is to never lose sight of why we're here in the first place. And that plan to be here in 30 years uh, that we're going to talk a lot about that. You guys have done a lot very deliberately on, on planning the growth for the next 30 years. So we'll, we'll hit on that. But uh, before we do that, Zach, tell us a little bit about Paces Ferry Wealth Advisors. 
Yeah, sure. So um, Paces Ferry Wealth Advisors was started on September 20th, 2018. So I, I give you the exact date because we still celebrate that as, as our Independence Day. It was the day that um, my co-founder, Jeff Diamond, and me left J.P. Morgan to start Paces Ferry Wealth Advisors. So we were fortunate enough to transition 90% of our, our clients to the new firm back then. And today we manage about 300 million in assets, a little over 300 million in assets, depending on the on the market. So including um, the two co-founders, we have about six employees and we provide comprehensive wealth management services for, for both families. And, and we have some, some corporations as well that we manage investments for. The vision, Matt, is really to continue to build on our current foundation so that we're able to expand the services and resources that our clients have access to, but also be able to provide career growth opportunities to employees and ultimately evolve into a brand and a, and a firm that provides an experience that both clients and employees are unable to find elsewhere. Great. And um, Vince, I mentioned you joined the firm in 2018. Tell us a little bit about your career path. Yeah, I did join in 2018. Um, I actually graduated college in 2016 and wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up actually also at JP Morgan, um, same as Zach, as a business analyst in the investment bank. As an aside, I do think there's a real opportunity for more student outreach from RIAs that there are alternative career paths within financial services. Absolutely. But anyway, at JP Morgan, I actually had a really great experience and learned a lot doing things that translated really well into the RAA world, not really planning for that. But this was project management, process improvement, data analysis, things like that, working with different teams all over the bank and learned a lot. I fortuitously met our founder, Mike Rislow, at a wedding. And about a year later, I joined FCC in early 2018 when we were both ready. Not sure I knew exactly what I was getting into. <laughs> it wasn't a hard decision to move back home to Rochester with a real opportunity to do something special. At the time, we had something like 20 clients with no office space, and I barely knew what an RAA was. But this was my chance to help people and build a business, not just be one of 300,000 people at a giant bank like JP Morgan. Um, 2018 and 2019 were kind of a blur in the best way. Week one, we had a second lead advisor join, which effectively doubled the firm. And I had to learn very quickly how to onboard all of those clients. We then had to outfit an office space with a phone system, document management solution, all the things that are necessary when you go from a solo practice in the front of your house to a real business um, in an office with, with double the amount of clients. Um, shortly after that, we completely changed our backend tech stack with the new reporting and rebalance system, as well as consolidating two custodians to one, which was still a massive undertaking even at that size. Over time, I was able to take over responsibility for more functional areas, such as billing and reporting, the day-to-day -day portfolio management for all of our clients, technology, HR, compliance, and business management, um, and certainly considered different career paths within, within this industry such as becoming an advisor, even earned my CFA charter for a potential investment specialization. But I really found my home in the operations world. So now that we're a team of five, I still wear a lot of hats. We all do. But my role as the operations and business partner is to be a force multiplier for the team. So for example, given this difficult market environment, we're reorienting resources and refocusing on investments. Or sometimes that may mean 
jumping in and assisting with a flurry of onboardings. And more broadly, it's my responsibility, of course, with the other partners to make sure day in and day out, we're living up to what we set out to do and really lead the charge in making the firm better through strategic projects. Well, I, I hope you would say, I hope you do say, geez, I wish I had COO Society in 2018, because that's really what we've designed it for is that that maybe not the very first hire like you were, <laughs> but someone in that first operations role that's saying, geez, I got to build everything here. What what do I need to do? How do I need to do it? And then and then with our monthly calls, giving you the opportunity to reach out to, to other people in similar uh, positions at RIAs and, and ask questions of, hey, I'm, I'm implementing CRM for the first time, or I'm going to change this system or whatever. So hopefully uh, that's been helpful to you. But but I, I hope you're saying, geez, I wish I had this during that, that uh, growth period. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that would have been tremendously helpful. And it still is helpful to have that network. Um, I remember in 2018 going to Schwab Impact that first year and just was totally eye-opening for me. Like, oh, there are still advisors who sell A-shares and do all these other things. Yeah. So it was really eye-opening to learn about the industry, but I think COL Society has been, would have been great then and, and still is for that. Well, thank you. Yes, great. Well, Zach, uh, you, you mentioned JP Morgan ahead of Paces Ferry, but tell us about your career journey. Yeah, sure. So um, my career started, I graduated in, uh, in 2006 and did a, a short stint at a community bank, followed by a sort of, you know, find yourself uh, travel around the world for six months where I went backpacking in, in South America and the Middle East, um, which we could, uh, I could do a whole hour on if, if you want to at some point. Um, but I, I won't, uh, won't go there today. And then I was in healthcare for about three years. And uh, my career in this business started in, uh, in 2011 when I, I joined forces with Jeff Diamond at, at JP Morgan. And I, I started off, I, I believe, like most financial advisors in the business, you know, working 12 to 14 hour days, doing a lot of cold calling at the beginning. And really, we grew the practice at JP Morgan for a number of years. And around 2017 or so, we decided that we really didn't have the autonomy we needed to shape the client experience that, to what we wanted it to be. So we decided to start looking around for another home for our business. And it's kind of funny because when you're when you're in the wirehouse world, that's all you know is the wirehouse world. I mean, we didn't we didn't know what independence was at the time. So we we looked at all the big firms, you know, Merrill, Morgan Stanley, uh, Raymond James, UBS, got proposals from a lot of them and offers, and and even did some home office visits. And it wasn't until we had a conversation with a gentleman from TD Ameritrade. Um, he was a TD Ameritrade rep that we sort of took on a whim. You know, we, we said, this guy wants to talk to us about being an independent advisor, you know, and sort of, sort of laughed at the whole idea because we had no idea what it was at the time. And when we met with him and he was telling us that, you know, all of these things that we had frustrations with were things that are actually handled by the custodian. And, you know, not only do we not work for the custodian, but they work for us. And so we started to look into this and it, it actually started to make sense and seemed very possible to to start a firm and, and make the leap to uh, to independence. And we really like the idea of being able to hold ourselves out as a as a fiduciary um, and act in a fiduciary capacity and drop our drop our theory seven and be a, a fee based advisor. So that was all very attractive to us. Uh, Matt, similar to you when you started uh, Luminous, I was the one that was tasked with 
laying the groundwork for for starting the business. And I guess it, it would have been definitely very helpful if we had COO Society at the time. You know, I was relying on uh, on RIA Biz and and uh, some other other articles, wealth management. Um, certainly uh, had a conversation with with you at some point uh, about a potential assistance and a breakaway. Really starting with a blank canvas of, okay, you know, what technology do we need? How is this all going to piece together? What technology plays well with our custodian? And how are we going to get our financial planning, our risk analysis software, and our, you know, performance reporting all to be on one client portal? Um, and it was really one step forward and two steps back to figure out how everything was going to work. And it took about a year to, to make it happen. But in um, September of 2018, we, uh, we you know, set our date and, and made the launch. And actually, the week before we left JP Morgan, the week before we were about to launch, I found out that me and my wife were going to have our first child. Huh. So <laughs> it added a, a little bit more risk to the move, but, uh, but everything, everything worked out, worked out great. I, it's so funny. I just thought of this. Uh, I still have PTSD from those early, early days. We've got my God, it's 15 years ago since starting Luminous. Literally this weekend and why it was on a weekend, not even a weekday. I, I woke up Saturday morning and I said to Reese, I had a dream about David Ho at Luminous Capital. He was screaming at me about the systems we were choosing. Yeah. <laughs> literally this week, 15 years later. So I still have PTSD from those early days. So I can definitely relate to what, and Vince, Vince told a similar story too, but what you went through very, very recently. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll stick with you, Zach. With, with the founding of the firm in 2018, how have you approached hiring? How have you determined what role or roles were the next hire to make? Right. Well, you know, two two advisors coming out of a of a wirehouse. Uh, you know, what do we know about opening an account? And uh, in our first ninety days, we had to open about four hundred and fifty of them. So, um, our first hire naturally was a client service associate, and um, that hire was was kind of a funny process because in talking to people, you know, they said, okay, so you you are starting a business, but you don't have any clients yet, you know, and we'd have to explain to them, well, we, we have the clients, they're just not there yet. You know, some people just couldn't couldn't wrap their heads around it. It might have been a little too much risk for them to to leave their jobs. Um, you know, I thought it was a great opportunity for anybody, but uh, we really had to find the the right person. So we eventually found somebody to to be our client service associate who really wanted to be an advisor. So we said that, uh, you know, once we got off the ground, we'd make them an associate advisor. So when that happened, we had to hire a, another client service associate. So I would say early on, our hiring was really based on uh, on need, sometimes even reactively. Um, and, and more recently, we've shifted to a philosophy of, really investing, you know, hiring to invest in the infrastructure of the company. So hiring ahead of need, we feel is going to um, allow us to use the appropriate amount of time to, to train individuals so that they're really ready to take on more responsibility when that time comes. Great. Well, Vince, I, with your very deliberate strategy around growth, how, how have you approached talent management and hiring? 
Uh, well, ultimately, we care deeply about the outcome and the quality of our services. So whichever growth path we go down, that will really be the governor that's driving the talent management strategy. We, we learned a number of important lessons along the way, and we're fortunate to have found the right people at the right time, largely through our relationships and networks. Um, I'm very proud of our team today, but there were times, had we been a bit more diligent in tracking our KPIs, we would have seen them flashing yellow for the most part, supporting the fact that everybody was over capacity. Um, so I think we've it's fair to say we've grown just about as fast as we possibly could have, and we're able to hire at the right times to keep that going. But we've become much more intentional about playing that chess match with detailed projections so we can make better decisions on who it is we need to hire and when. Um, so that includes simple efficiency KPIs like AUM and revenue per client. Um, margin's another big data point. It's kind of seems weird to say, but if our margin is too high, um, that might mean it's we're running lean and it's time to hire somebody if we want to take on that next client. Um, and we also pay close attention to the client service queue to gauge capacity. So if a money movement or an onboarding takes longer than it should, um, that's a pretty good indicator. So when we're running those projections, we we have identified a few different growth paths forward. And each one would mean a different team structure and talent strategy. So growing with our current clients is the preferred method. It's the highest quality growth uh, for obvious reasons. Um, then, of course, we'd like to organically add new ideal clients. Um, and another option is to add a third lead advisor. But frankly, for a number of reasons, there's a pretty high bar to find that person. Hmm. After multiple years of informal coffees and beers and even a, a more dedicated effort with recruiters, we still haven't been successful in that search. Um, and it's fair. It's, it's a tough environment to, to make a big change like that if you do have clients. Um, I do think we'll find a handful of those advisors over the long term, but it's it's much harder in terms of recruiting. So one answer to that has been building an analyst training program with a clear path to becoming an advisor that just takes more time and effort over a long period of time. Um, but putting that work in now means that future growth is there down the road. So we have a great team foundation of generalists. Um, and now we can just be really more deliberate in adding those specialists along the way, depending on which growth path we take. Um, I'll also say inorganic M&A is not really a core part of our strategy. It's obviously a difficult market to be a buyer. Um, so we'll continue to keep those feelers out there and are certainly open to opportunities, but we're just going to be really extremely selective, looking for the right people and the right clients. Once you have these folks on board, I'm curious what you both have done to shape the culture of the firm. Uh, Zach, I'll, I'll let you answer this one first. Okay. Um, so I would say that our, our culture, and the number one thing in our culture is really service service for service and client experience. And I mean, it seems silly that it's something that, that needs to be said, but I feel like there's a lot of firms out there that, that don't really focus on service and don't put the client experience first. So, uh, you know, one example I'll give you is that everybody at the company has a piece of paper on their monitors and it's got 10 different points that are just, just really reminders, service reminders. But one of them that, that I really like says never allow clients to do something for themselves that you could do for them. It's just a constant reminder that, you know, we're in the service business and that we re need to remember that every minute of every day. You know, we treat everyone's needs the same. We treat every problem like it's our own. And we also have very 
frequent communication with our clients, uh, you know, quarterly, if, if not monthly, for some clients, especially when we bring them on, we have a, a pretty strict regimen of talking to them on a monthly basis for implementation, at least for six months. Another big part of our culture is really a growth mindset. You know, I say that as, as of course, we want the, we want the firm to grow. Right, because that's going to be able to provide us provide more services and, and resources to clients, but it's also going to provide more you know career path opportunities for employees. We think that's very important and something that we've really uh, tried to build out more recently. Um, we hired uh, Herbers and Co recently in order to uh, help us with building out these career paths. And we've done this for both the client service department as well as the advisory career path. The other part of our culture is really a learning culture. So everybody here is is always learning, always looking for opportunities to learn and teach for that matter. So I do training once a week on everything from 529 plans to complex trust structures or taxation of various executive comp plans. We also support and encourage professional development. Just this week, I have my client service manager who's in a full week immersion project management and leadership development program. Our uh, associate advisor over the holidays took a break from studying for his uh, level three CFA in order to get a, a student loan certification so that we could help clients and clients' children analyze their student loans and, and potentially lower their payments. And then I have an, a client service associate who's getting his master's in in financial planning right now. So learning is certainly a very big part of our culture. I love the reminders of the, on the client service side. I love those 10, 10 bullets that you have on everybody's, everybody's desk. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's something that we take seriously and I'll, I'll share you all, all 10 points sometime if you're interested. Absolutely. Perfect. Thanks. And uh, Vince, I'll ask you, how, how have you approached the all-important concept of culture at your firm? Yeah, I think Zach hit on so many good points there. Strategically, we believe that the firm with the best people is probably going to win over the long term. So naturally, a core part of our strategy is, is to be that workplace where the best people want to be. And I think of culture as a, a key part of how we execute on that. So it starts with our, our values of always doing the right things for clients. And it's easy to say that, but I think the little things really count. So for example, making clients whole through fee reimbursements, even if something wasn't necessarily our fault, or spending time with a family member of our clients who isn't a client themselves after a relative had passed. I think those things really add up and make a difference. And it's important to all be on that same page. But on a smaller team, every single person has a huge impact on the culture. So we're very protective of it. And it also takes a lot of intentionality and care. So at a foundation level, it's it's so many things, building a thoughtful compensation and benefits plan, um, developing a comfortable and flexible work environment, hosting team building events, and challenging each other to always get better personally and professionally. And I think it makes a big difference if everybody understands their role in our strategy and sees the impact of their work in our clients' lives and moving the business forward. So Zach mentioned career paths. Um, that's that's a big part of our growth strategy to build advisors instead of hiring them. Uh, but it also is a an important part of attracting talent for all roles at the firm. 
the way we kind of envision that is a two-year analyst program where you're going to learn a lot and have exposure to all aspects of the firm. You're going to do paperwork, you're going to do portfolio analyses and, and financial planning. And then after two years, there are different paths, whether that's becoming an associate advisor and then a lead advisor or an op specialization into technology or compliance. Um, maybe it's an investment analyst or portfolio manager. We're really excited about this program. Um, even though we've only had one person go through it, I think that's a key part of our, our future growth and talent strategy. And there are also some things about being on a smaller team that make culture more difficult. Um, it's easy to put our heads down and and work hard. We all have each other's back and want to lift each other up at the end of the day, but we are also people and it's important to let some humanity into the office, especially when we spend so much time together. So that just means honest communication like any other relationship to work through issues and come out stronger. Overall, the goal is to, of course, make FCC a great place to work, but we think clients can feel the difference too when they walk into our office and, and know that everybody's happy and healthy and, and motivated. I love it. That's great. Well, as I, as I mentioned during the intro, I've spoken to both of you for a while now, and I've been very impressed with your vision and your planning around scalability of the businesses. So many RIAs will say, well, we're young. Once we get to whatever that AUM number is, once we get to a certain level of AUM, then we'll think about making the business scalable. But we're not really a, quote, real company yet. <laughs> so we'll deal with that when the, when the time comes. But both of you have put systems and processes in place from day one. So Vince, I'll go to you first. Talk, talk to us about some of the things you've implemented to allow the firm to continue to serve more and more clients without your service level dropping as you've added all those clients. Yeah, I would say building for growth is, is one thing, but the more important goal for us was more thinking about operations as a real strength that's equally valuable as the advice side of the ledger. Mm -hmm. It's embedded within everything that we do as a business and all the strategy and vision doesn't mean much if we can't execute on it, both for clients and from running the business perspective. Um, so we've seen what happens when operations isn't a, a strength. And the simple idea was we're building this for the next 30 years. What if we do it right the first time and build a powerful chassis up front so the business is more valuable and not necessarily dependent on these rainmaking advisors? Um, so to get to that point, we we did live in the belly of the J curve, I would say, for a year or or, or so in 2018 when we our team was expanding and we were reinvesting in technology and people. But it didn't take long to get to the other side of that. So a few examples of that reinvestment and building out the chassis were we reinvested heavily in building a centralized reporting and portfolio management system. And on an ongoing basis, we spend a lot of time ensuring clean data, books and records. Yeah, yeah. So this connects with our investment philosophy with, you know, consistent model portfolios where all portfolios are managed to the same parameters. So that allowed us to trade all client portfolios in a matter of hours in March 2020 when the market was on fire. It means our entire billing and reporting process can be completed within days of quarter end. And we have accurate client data and firm data at our fingertips without the need for some serious massaging for timely metrics and reporting, things like that. Another big one is systematizing financial planning wherever we can. Um, so these are things like for my year-end tax processes and, and always evolving inventory of our planning tools and analyses that we can draw on, or even just a consistent meeting prep and post-meeting processes. That's a tricky one because advisors need discretion and our clients aren't robots, um, but that standardization and efficiency actually results in a better client experience and more value created. A more recent example is alternative investments, which are frankly a bit of a nightmare from an operations perspective for so many reasons. 
But uh, since 2021, those have really added value to client portfolios, and hopefully they will continue to do so. That's why we're currently building our own private fund that's only open to FCC clients. We're not doing this as a money-making enterprise. The goal is to make the process easier for everyone and increase accessibility. So we're built to be scalable, and I'm confident we could onboard 10 new clients next quarter and nothing would break. And as the operations and business partner, I feel, I feel great about that. If there are any problems with our growth, it's not operations trying to keep up. But we always say we're trying to be better, not bigger, um, which are not mutually exclusive. There's this very natural and healthy tension between the two. A really efficient, high-performing team of 12 members in 10 years or so would be a great outcome. That just means we have considerable optionality within the system to, to weaponize all the work that we've done when the time does come to take advantage of the right opportunity. Great. And Zach, uh, you know, Vince was talking about those reinvestments. So talk to us about some of the investments that you've made and the the processes you've implemented to allow your business to scale. So this is something that I've thought a lot about and and from day one, as you mentioned, Matt, have um, really focused on, you know, making sure that every process that we implement is scalable. And, you know, I remember asking our client service associates very early on, you know, is this process that we did this five times in one day, where's the breaking point or 10 times in one day, where's the breaking point? And they would, they would laugh and they'd say, you know, we only have, we only have one of these requests today. Um, you know, why do we have to plan for that? But I always thought it was very important because, you know, we want that fifth request to have the same experience. Yeah. Going back to, as Vince mentioned, you know, having good processes also leads to better client experience. You know, it also leads to the ability to to train new client service associates and, and new advisors. I mean, if you have three different problems that each have three different solutions, then, you know, that's nine different things to train somebody on. But if we can just pick out, you know, what's what's the optimal solution, what's the optimal path for each one of these problems, um, then it's much more scalable, it's much more trainable. So, you know, making sure that whatever process that we had was not proprietary to the person that was doing it, but it was it was recordable and it was repeatable and it was trainable. When we were planning the launch of Paces Ferry Wealth Advisors, you know, coming out of the wirehouse world, there was a lot of inefficiencies. And so I, I started a wish list of automations that I wanted to be able to implement when we uh, started. And so I sent this wish list to Salesforce as a possibility for our CRM system. And they came back with a, a proposal that was a uh, a small fortune and probably more appropriate for a firm, you know, 10 times our size. So what we did was we ended up building out a lot of these automations over time. We use something called Zapier, which allows you to connect, uh, you know, one program to another or even, even have a, you know, if this, then that relationship within a single program. And this allowed me to uh, build out automations such as if it took five steps or 10 steps to do a check deposit, send a text message to the client, you know, put it in a in a compliance friendly format, and also create a a task for the money to be invested. You know, this could be done in in two steps through through automation. Same thing with taking a note and and creating a a cash raise request. Phone messages, you know, instead of everybody requesting that a phone message be delivered to them in different ways you know, we were able to create automations so that it just got delivered to them in every way, every way possible. Uh, so nobody ever missed a, a phone message. 
one of my favorite automations from early on. And we don't, we do a lot of video meetings now, so we're not going to lunch with people as much. But early on, I had an automation that I could take a picture of a business card and it would automatically add the person to our newsletter, add them to our CRM system, send them an email, say, nice to meet you, here's my contact information. And it would also send them a LinkedIn request. Scalability and automation is going to be, you know, the way of the future and also a way that advisors are going to be able to, and firms are going to be able to compete um, and really being able to, you know, achieve that bionic advisor where I don't think that, you know, the human touch is going to go away, but I think advisors are going to have to be able to do more, you know, more with less and, and be able to provide the optimal client experience. So we also implemented Eclipse in 2019, 2020 as our trading software, which was um, which was a you know a large enhancement to to everything that we were doing before. Similar to what Vince mentioned, you know the ability to trade multiple accounts at once really allows us to to be a little more more nimble in, in times like 2020. Well, I'm going to jump on my soapbox here for a second, and and I know I'm preaching to the choir with our our audience, but what you guys are both talking about, I get so frustrated when I hear, and you hear it often, unfortunately, in our industry, oh, that's operations, they're back office, that's back office, folks, we are more concerned with our client facing folks. And and we, you know, they may not say it outright, but, but through their actions, we value the client facing folks better. But the operations team is the ones that are building the actual client experience that the client facing folks are going to be executing. And it's all about, and I, you know, again, I'm preaching to the choir with our, with our audience, but you want your 101st client to feel the same experience as your first client. And you want all of them from one to 101 or a thousand and one, whatever it is, you want them all to feel like you're, they're your only client. And the only way you can do that is through having all of these scalable processes that you, both of you are, are talking about. So uh, that, that, that's my, my, my soapbox for the day, but that leads right into the next question we were going to we were going to tackle one thing that we've we've talked about on in the COO society we have a, an entire course dedicated to it is the the pros and cons of having a centralized back office versus more of a pod structure i've always called it the pod structure where each advisor has their own dedicated service team so zach how how have you approached this decision of centralization versus versus you know what i call that pod structure sure so um this is something that that I've, I've read a lot about, learned a lot about. I would say at this point we are still young, so we haven't had to make a full decision on on which way we're going to grow into. I do feel like every firm and and advisor and, and client service associate team has this gravitational pull to the pod structure, and uh, and I think without intervention, that's where everything typically goes. But I feel like. The centralized client service department allows for some more continuity of the, the client relationship. If, for instance, a, uh, a client service associate leaves the firm or, or moves to a different role or even even goes on vacation, I think that the the pod structure, and, and when I'm referring to the pod structure, I know there's there's many different ways of, of looking at it. I'm thinking more of the, the totem pole structure of advisor, associate advisor, client service associate. And I, I think it lends itself also to the ability to more have more proprietary processes. You know, this person does it this way, this client service associate does it this way. Yeah. I also feel like it uh 
it doesn't lend itself to as much of, of career mobility for the client service associate. Um, you know, if they're the only person that that advisor is relying on, then they might feel a little pigeonholed and, um, and may not feel as though they can dabble in marketing or maybe they want to explore the possibility of, of going into operations or, or even, you know, focus more on financial planning and take on more of that role for, for even other advisors. So, I say that all with the caveat that, you know, I'm sure there's a there's a happy medium somewhere and, and you know, probably the answer for us eventually would be some kind of some kind of hybrid model. Yep. And Vince, how have you decided to structure the back office at Flower City? Uh, it's funny. I have a very similar thought to on that. Mm-hmm. Zach. Uh, it's an ongoing conversation, but it's it's so fun to think about these things as we look forward at the moment. It, it is kind of a moot point on a five-person team. Uh, we do have two advisors with their own clients, and they collaborate with each other and assist each other's clients. Um, and each of us on the support side is as cross-trained as one big service team for all of our clients, which I think is, is actually a real strength. But we will continue to specialize with future hires, putting those right puzzle pieces in place. So that kind of forces the question. So my, my ops brain initially wanted to centralize everything. <laughs> for a more consistent client experience, control, efficiency, all the things. But I think our thinking in this has evolved with our growth strategy, which really comes down to who our ideal client is. So the high level plan is to have fewer, deeper relationships. um, And a pod structure is making more and more sense for a lot of reasons. So the value proposition is, is not to be the lowest cost provider or even the most differentiated. It's about providing the most value to each of our clients, respectively, which which needs a more personalized approach. And we think a pod structure is probably the best way to deliver that, at least um, for all, everything on the client-facing side. So that's where I think, like Zach, a hybrid approach is probably where we're headed in the near term. So we are going to be selective on hiring that next advisor, which means building pods consisting of a lead advisor and a service advisor is not only a key part of how we're going to grow, and make things more efficient with the lead advisor being able to focus on the relationship and less on meeting prep, but it's it's a better way to deliver that high-touch customized service to high net worth and ultra-high net worth clients. But on the back end, there's still a lot of room to standardize and centralize all of the processes for that efficiency and consistent client experience. So that might mean two advisory teams of two, and then on, on the support side, we might have two client services team members, uh, maybe a dedicated portfolio manager, and another analyst potentially that are all working together to support those two advisory teams with the same processes. So one challenge though I think about is how not to develop silos or that shirts and skins mentality, but across pods. So I think our answer to that has to come back to culture. Yeah. I think your analysis, it's kind of what we concluded in our course as well, the more complicated the end clients are, the more gravitational pull towards that pod structure. You need you need the service team to be very close to that particular client and that complicated household. Um, smaller clients, less complex clients, that can be centralized. But when you get into the ultra high net worth area and a, potent, a potential household could have 40, 50 account numbers, you kind of need that pod structure where the people servicing it, um, trading in it, et cetera, they're, they're closer to the client. So I think, I think you're looking at it the same way I do. Absolutely. And then that all leads to, you know, you mentioned, you know, so your end client, your, your ideal client, that's where we'll go next. 
very much tied to the scalability of the firm is determining what types of clients you're going to serve and what services you're going to offer them. So Vince, I'm going to stick with you. I think your ideal client has shifted somewhat over the years. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, it has. I think so much of our strategy over the last seven years was learning when to say no. And Mm -hmm. what we ultimately arrived at was to stay laser focused on our core one to 10, two to $10 million client, because that's what we do best. It allows us to tailor all aspects of the business and the value chain to those clients. Early on, we were involved in a number of CFO consulting arrangements. They provided stable monthly cash flow when we were in that J curve, and they made us made us better practitioners. We were also advisors to a number of 401k plans, and for a time, debated investing and growing that segment with the specialized software and ERISA expertise and all the things that go into it. Both of those led to great relationships with business owners on the high net worth side. But we truly believe, especially on the 401k side, the best thing you can do in that situation is to design a clean plan and lower the fees as much as possible, which is a a very different business model than what we do. So within the core high net worth offering, we've generally eschewed niching, even though that's kind of the prevailing wisdom on how to compete as a young advisory business. If you're a great family that we enjoy working with and need help with planning and investments, that's that's kind of where we shine. And, and we like having a diversified client base because we want to help more people and we believe it makes us stronger. So even though we don't have specific niches, the clients do generally align and do a few different profiles. So a typical FCC client is near or around the peak of their career looking for someone they can trust when things get complicated across all aspects of planning and investments. But we also love working with retirees whose plans are largely on the rails and really value more of the advice and the operational execution. And lastly, a lot of people call them Henry's. That's what we call them. High earners, not rich yet. These clients are, they're accumulators. They're business owners. They're executives who we want to work with for the next 30 or 40 years and grow our careers together. Even if they don't have a million dollars right now, they also kind of reduce our average client age to about 50 and ensure we have that embedded future growth over the next however many years. So that's really our sweet spot. And it doesn't mean we couldn't help in more of a family office capacity or work with someone who's saved 300,000, for example, but they are different business models. Right. Even after all that, they're hard conversations. Um, We recently did just a simple website upgrade, some simple marketing efforts, and we've, we've been generating cold leads for people who have never heard of us before consistently. And it's fantastic, but they're not necessarily great fits with everything I just mentioned. So we try to stay nimble and adapt in all aspects of the business. Uh, and I think that's really the consistent theme for for all the things we've talked about, um, where we're excited for the future, but it all comes back to taking great care of our, our clients, our core clients, and always getting better. Well said. Yeah. And Zach, how have you thought about Paces Ferry's ideal client and the service offering that you want to deliver to those clients? Similar to events, you know, I think every RIA kind of goes through a, uh, a process where they fine tune their ideal client over time. And, and we're no different, you know, dating back to our early days at JP Morgan, we met with a lot of different people in a lot of different stages in life. And what we found was that the people that ended up working with us and, and really ended up, you know, finding the value in what we did were in this late stage accumulation or, or distribution phase. 
So the services that we're providing were, you know, really comprehensive retirement planning, um, you know, consulting on social security strategies, business exit planning, sometimes even guidance around uh, simple to complex estate planning, you know, even sometimes going going with them to their uh, their state attorney's office, sign as a witness on their wills, um, you know, these types of things don't necessarily lend themselves to or are as attractive to, to maybe a Henry. So our typical client is somewhere between the age of 50 and 70 in the late stage accumulation or distribution phases of their lives. And while the principles that we utilize are good for people in a, a wide range of, of net worth, our sweet spot typically uh, ends up being around you know, one to 10, two to 10 million, as Vince had mentioned. And also we have a, a handful of ultra high net worth as well as some people with a, a couple hundred thousand. Um, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned, our client service culture is that we're, we're really trying to provide the same level of service to every client, no matter what their net worth is. We also have another set of services that we provide to executives at any age, so they could be in their in their early 30s to you know late 60s, but really they have more of a complex wealth scenario where maybe they're getting executive comp, restricted stock instead of stock options, non-qualified stock options. So they really lean on us for for the advice you know, along with the retirement planning, but also the advice on execution strategies and coordinating with their with their CPA to help, uh, you know, minimize taxes as they exit those strategies. Fantastic. Well, Vince and Zach, after, after spending time with you both in our COO Society community, I knew you'd be fantastic guests. I think our listeners have, have learned a lot from both of you today and how you're growing the businesses. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. This is great. Thank you, Matt. Awesome. Well, that is a wrap on episode 51. We will talk to everybody soon.